I always point out to people that California is still a two-party state. It just so happens that they are both Democratic parties. That's Dan Schnur, a veteran of many California elections, as an advisor, a campaign finance reformer, and an independent candidate himself for the Secretary of State's office a few elections ago. I finished behind the two-party nominees and a convicted felon. And so um, I'm glad I ran for the office. I was able to raise some reform issues, at least one of which was implemented in the California State Senate. A lot to learn from Dan Schnur in this episode, the first in our California series. I'm Robert Pease, and this is The Purple Principle, a podcast about the perils of polarization. We have a very special L.A.-based guest host for these episodes, Barbara Bogave, veteran NPR host on many great shows, including Fresh Air, as well as To the Point and Press Play from KCRW. Barbara, so great to have you aboard. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for the invitation. And I got to say, I'm really enjoying talking to some new folks with you, along with uh, some of the usual suspects from the local shows I do. And I'm also looking forward to our upcoming conversations with Leon Panetta and Gustavo Arellano of the LA Times. Yeah, we've been very fortunate on our guest invites. But first, Barbara, especially for listeners not in California, what should we have in mind for this episode and for the whole series? Ugh, well, you're going to have to stop me. I'm going to go on and on. I, I, I don't think it's a surprise to anybody that California is no typical state, right? And we have to start with the population. It's nearly 40 million people, more than the whole population of Canada. And, of course, with that many people, you're so diverse. And we are ethnically, economically, geographically. Spiritually, uh, gastronomically, here's another factoid. San Francisco has the most restaurants per household uh, more than anywhere else in the country. And I mention that because it brings us straight back to income inequality, which is always at the heart of a conversation about California. So many Californians can't afford those great restaurants. So I think to sum up, a lot like your Texas series, uh, we're really discussing the nation of California. It just so happens to be a state. It is a huge topic. And that's why we're fortunate to have another guest on the show, the author Joel Kotkin. He's a longtime resident with a very critical eye on the California economy, geography, and demography. In the past, middle class and working class people trying to improve their lives came to California. I don't think they come anymore for that. Well, we'll hear more from Joel Kotkin in just a bit. But why don't we kick things off with Dan Schnur? He's a former longtime Republican strategist who became an independent in recent years. So we asked him about his own personal odyssey, but also his take on Kotkin's observation that California is hardly a model of economic mobility anymore. The real danger is that California becomes a place for only the very rich and the very poor. And for all sorts of reasons, middle-class Californians, particularly those living in coastal areas, have either moved into the eastern part of the state or across state lines to neighboring states. Uh, the city of San Francisco actually has fewer children per capita in the city than any other large city in the United States of America simply because it is so prohibitively expensive for parents to raise children within the city limits. And that type of affordability challenge is creating a huge problem for the state. And what's that huge problem? 
So the huge problem of having a, a state for the very rich and the very poor is, of course, that the middle class is the economic engine that drives growth and drives job creation. What that means for the state budget is another challenge. Uh, we have a uh, extremely progressive income tax system here in which the state is so reliant on a relatively small number of upper income earners that when there is an economic downturn, the bottom really does fall out, which means that government services to those who depend on them have to be cut very, very dramatically. Dan, can we talk a little bit more about that affordability crisis? Obviously, California has relatively high tax rates, but there also seems to be like a housing policy or a housing supply problem. So tell us about the major drivers of the affordability issue. Oh, there are a few drivers, but by far the most notable and the most impactful of them is the cost of housing, particularly in coastal areas. But the end result is that we're already seeing a pretty significant flow from coastal to inland California, where working class Californians can find more affordable housing. What that means to some degree is that the economic base of the state has changed, but what it's meant even more, ironically, particularly in an area in which we face the tremendous challenge of climate change, is it means more and more Californians are driving further and further in order to get to their jobs. That's all true, Dan, but is that changing at all in, in this pandemic and with hope uh, post-pandemic era where more and more well, people are working from home and there's a real shift in in the in the way we're thinking about the workplace. No question about it. We have seen a noticeable shift from urban and coastal California into eastern and other less populated areas. I don't think anybody knows yet whether in California or elsewhere ultimately what the future of remote work is. But we're also seeing a lot of Californians moving to other states and to other parts of the country too. In other words, if you're going to work remotely in Silicon Valley, why not live? in Oregon or Utah, Nevada, or Arizona. I'm so interested in your personal story. If we could look at that right now. You ran for Secretary of State as an independent in 2014, but I noticed that you switched your registration from Republican to independent three years before that and were very involved with finance reform. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. The two things you mentioned are pretty unrelated. I switched my party registration in 2011, I had just finished uh, some time as the state, as the chairman of the state's Fair Political Practices Commission, the state's campaign watchdog. And when I returned to civilian life, I realized I didn't really have a place in either major party anymore. I tell my students that there's an uh, essential difference between politics and football. I tell them that in politics, the victories come in between the 40-yard lines. And it doesn't matter how smart you are, how determined you are, or how correct you are. As long as you spend your time on one goal line or the other, you're not going to get very much done in a democracy. And as I watched both parties retreat further and further from midfield into their respective end zones, parking lots, I don't know what comes after that, but further and further (laughs) from the place where we're going to get done. End of the tug of war rope. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, I realized I didn't have a a place in either party anymore and switched my registration to what is somewhat pejoratively known in California as a no party preference voter. A few years later, unrelated to that, because I have become a very strong 
advocate for campaign finance reform. I became the first independent, the first no-party preference candidate ever to run for statewide office in the state of California. And there were a few days when I thought I'd make history. But on most days, I thought the best I could do is maybe make it easier for the second no-party preference candidate. <laughs> to run for statewide <laughs> office in California. And we can uh, talk about that. Uh, but so, but but getting back to those days, you got some pretty hard knocks for it. Did you have a lot of people or did were people advising you against this? Yes, and in fact- People, people who love who, you, Dan. <laughs> people who I respect in both parties uh, made it very, very clear to me that running as an independent or no party preference candidate for an office that most people didn't understand would be almost impossible. And the advice I got, Republicans wanted, told me to come back to their party. Democrats told me to complete the switch and come to theirs. I didn't have any interest in running for another office and didn't have any interest in running as a candidate in either party for an office that I think ought to be a neutral one. I mean, I think the person who oversees the state's elections should not be a member of, of one party or the other. So I disregarded that advice and came up very, very, very short, but had a great time in the process. By very short, what was that, like 3% of the vote or something? Hey, be nice. Uh, <laughs> I'll have you know I got 9% of the vote. Oh, excuse me. I'm so sorry. And even if it was a very small a step forward, I believe I did lay the groundwork for Steve Poisoner, who ran as an independent for insurance mm. commissioner four years ago and achieved roughly 47 48% of the vote. And this year, we're seeing a no-party preference candidate, Anne-Marie Schubert, running for the state attorney general. And she's a very interesting candidate, right? She has these deep Republican roots. And, uh, you know, on one hand, people are criticizing her for being opportunistic, obviously. But on the other, she is um, uh, she's out, she's gay, and she's very uh, liberal on social, pretty liberal on social issues. What do you think yeah, her I, chances are? It's still an uphill fight for her. It's not a coincidence, in my opinion, that the Republicans and Democrats in the California state legislature require us to use a very nebulous term of no party preference, or as it appears on the ballot, as NPP. And no normal person knows what that means. No, everybody simply, shakes their head. They think it's something crazy. As opposed <laughs> to simply be, because I think they understand that if the designation were independent, that that carries a positive connotation with it. And yeah. if you are a member of one of the two major parties in the state legislature, you don't want to do anything to create additional competition for your candidates. But Schubert is a fascinating candidate. And I think, although it is an uphill fight for someone outside of the two parties, given how public attitudes in this state, even a deep blue state like California, have changed so dramatically on public safety issues over the last couple of years, I think she does have a, a reasonable chance. Well, Dan, can we talk about the GOP in California, which has been in the political wilderness, so to speak, yeah, for a that decade won't take or so? Long. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, we have a nanosecond for that, Robert. <laughs> well, there was an effort, uh, which I think lasted two or three nanoseconds, to split from the national GOP and create a separate. California GOP. I believe Schwarzenegger might have been involved at some point. And why did that fizzle so quickly? Well, it's a really smart question to ask because it is worth noting that in other blue states, in Massachusetts, in Maryland, in Vermont, and elsewhere, Republicans have been able to be successful by establishing a different brand than the, the National Party. 
We see this in the Democratic Party, too. So the question is, is why haven't California Republicans been able to establish that different type of identity the way smart leaders in both parties do in parts of the country where their party is, is in the minority? And my own opinion on this, and it's just one person's opinion, albeit from a great distance these days, it's been a, a while since I've been actively involved there, is a lack of will. The conservative, the more conservative Republicans, whether pro-Trump uh, Republicans or more classic conservatives like being a big fish in a small pond. Yeah, that's interesting. It kind of the flip side of some things that are happening in Texas, which we'd like to ask you about. But let's let's first talk about the California Democratic Party. And you talked about some significant factions there. Do they mirror the national factions of, to simplify, progressives and moderates in Washington, or do they have a kind of unique California perspective? Both. Um, it is a similar dynamic, but with a twist to it. And you do find one party that is more progressive, not just on social and cultural issues, but on economic issues as well. Very, very progressive, very populist on economic issues. But I think primarily because of our state's top two primary, you also in the legislature have what they call themselves new Democrats. They call themselves the mod squad for a while before they realized that half century old Pop culture references really weren't all that helpful. <laughs> that, <laughs> they were anymore. so out of it. Yeah. <laughs> 23 skidoo, exactly. <laughs> but regardless of what you call them, uh, the state's business interests realizing just how far the Republican Party here had fallen began to put a lot of time and effort and money into electing Democrats to office under the top two primary, who were still very progressive on social and cultural matters but who are much more pro-business on economic issues. And you really do see that tension existing almost every day in Sacramento to the point where the California Chamber of Commerce, which every year puts out a list of what they call job killer bills, has been able to defeat the overwhelming majority of those job killer bills over the last decade or so. On one hand, because Governor Brown and to a slightly lesser extent, Governor Newsom have been cooperative, but also because there is a cadre of pro-business Democrats who work with them on job creation issues. Those Democrats generally tend to come from inland California. A lot come from the Central Valley Inland Empire. Interestingly, a lot of them are members of minority communities. And you'll, you'll, you'll hear a Latino or a Black legislator say, yes, I worry about climate change, but my constituents have to get to work. We're back and learning a lot here from Dan Schnur, veteran political strategist, professor at Berkeley, USC, and Pepperdine. And Barbara, Dan made such an important point about those factions within the Democratic Party because California is one of the very few states with open and unified primaries. Right. And that means Democrats and Republicans are on the same ballot. And then the top two finishers move on to the general election. And in California, with such a weak GOP, you could see a progressive Democrat versus a centrist Democrat in some of these general elections, uh, for instance, such as the L.A. mayor's race and some down-ballot statewide races as well. Yeah. As Dan told us, California has two parties. They just both happen to be parts of the Democratic Party. 
And registered Democrats do outnumber Republicans by two to one statewide. And generally, the way it breaks down is, and this is no surprise, more progressive Democrats on the coast, and then you have your more centrist Democrats to the interior. And that's a point we're about to discuss with our second guest, the rather independent-minded Joel Kotkin. He's written or co-written some 10 books on a bunch of subjects, everything from the economic vitality of California four decades ago to what he's now calling the neo-feudal nature of California today. Well, the problem that's happening in California is when I came here in 1971, we had a two-party system. And then within that two-party system, there were moderate and conservative factions. There was a great deal of debate. And we were usually able to find some sort of ability to make decent policy here in California based on some degree of rationality. In the last 20 to 30 years, and particularly in the last 10 the state has become essentially a one-party state. And so now what we see in California is, a, in a sense, an amplification of the same polarization you're seeing elsewhere, and it's more institutionalized. And what makes it work relatively, although I think this is going to collapse very soon in many ways, is the enormous amount of money from the tech companies and the enormous increase in the property values, which has allowed the state to essentially abandon a good part of its economy, but has enough wealth to pay for redistribution on a massive scale. And that's sort of where we've headed, as opposed to sort of trying to create a more diversified economy, we've become increasingly dependent on a small group of people. Well, when you talk about some of these significant changes in the last 40 years in California, you always bring up political elitism in this one-party rule. Is this what you're talking about? Are these all examples of political elitism or results of it? Yeah, they are. And one of the odd parts of it is the Republicans made it possible. One, by passing 180, by 187, which meant for a long time, although this may be changing a bit now, we lost the, the Hispanic population, just became one party. They had been- And and you're talking about Prop 187 and for our listeners who are- Oh aren't. yeah, 187 was an attempt to- essentially limit public services to the undocumented. And that included things like schools and hospitals. And so it alienated a lot of people, not surprisingly. Um, So that helped create the one-party system. The other part that created the one-party system was an idiot move by conservatives to have term limits. Now, at first, it sounded like a good idea. But what happened is you lost representatives who were from their district and they became they represented interest groups. And today in California, the green nonprofits, the real estate interests, and um, and the tech guys basically call the shots. And the other really powerful group is the public employee unions, which who are, you know, I was talking to somebody I know who was in the legislature, and she said to me, she was a Democrat, she said, when we have education bills, my members would look at their phones to see what the lobbyists tell them what to do. And that's, you talk about the, the, the moralization. Well, California's not alone in that. <laughs> no, no, except that, see, the only, but the thing is, if you have a two-party system, at least, you know, there's some degree of accommodation. And it's sort of become winner-take-all politics. You know, either you run as a far left progressive or as a far right Republican. And moderates are hard to find. 
Yeah, well, moderates are hard to find everywhere. Um, right. And we've, we've been doing this you know, series on state-level polarization. We would like to play you something from that series. This is the author and New Yorker writer, Lawrence Wright, on Californians moving to Texas. And uh, then we'll ask for your comment on it. Sure. It's stunning to me with all the people moving to Texas that our unemployment rate stays so low. And that's because jobs are being created faster than people are moving here. And a lot of those jobs are, you know, immigrants from California. I was talking to an entrepreneur who, one of the tech guys who's moved from the Bay Area and a very successful Silicon Valley uh, creator. And he said, you know, we failed California. We failed San Francisco. And I just hope we don't do the same thing in Texas. Yeah. So again, that was uh, Lawrence Wright, who we interviewed recently. And there's a lot of ironies there because, you know, Governor Abbott in Texas has a, a slogan, don't California my Texas. And yet they're trying to attract all these California companies to Texas. Well, you know, of course, I, I'm affiliated both with one think tank, California and one in Houston. So, you know, I traveled a great deal between the two. Basically, what Texas is trying to do in some senses is to replace the role California used to play. California was where you went if you were young, aggressive, trying to create a new future, but you weren't really established. And that's really who's now coming to Texas. The California that I went to was a California where no, you know, particularly Los Angeles, nobody gave a damn where you went to college. Nobody, it wasn't a heavily credentialed place. People started grassroots businesses. Some of them did really well. Some of them didn't. That is now what I see in Houston, in Dallas, in Austin, in San Antonio, that kind of spirit. Now, California, in my mind, is always going to be the best place to be in terms of weather, in terms of topography. It has a certain specialness. But I think for the younger people, what we noticed, this is the most important thing. The in-migration to California has dropped to nearly the, the bottom of all the states. What is your data telling you about why people are moving? Because you always you always have corporations moving out because of high taxes, and that's one thing. Right. And then you have these uh, young families moving out primarily because of high cost of living and, and housing. Is that right? Right. That's exactly right. When When you ask people why they're leaving, the biggest thing seems to be housing. Housing is about 85% of the difference in cost between one region and another. And so um, to close the loop on this conversation back to polarization, is that what you're tracing these trends? Yeah, back? I, I, mean, I you think put this, this is, all at the feet of one party rule. No, I wouldn't put all of it. I think there's a lot of things. I think one party rule makes it worse. Having policies where you can't essentially build single family homes in suburbs, which is exactly what middle class people want. If you can't do that, then you end up either they those people either leave or they just become lifetime renters um, and they're generally not very happy about it. Yeah, well, if you don't mind, let's talk a little bit more about housing policy. We'd like to play a clip from Dr. Ryan Enos of Harvard University, happens to be from California. He's a political geographer who studies polarization nationwide. 
in many ways, you could think of it as kind of natural that Democrats are living in cities and Republicans are living in rural areas, um, especially as wealth is concentrated among increasingly among Democrats and cities are hard to live in. And frankly, this is sort of the fault of liberals in places like I live, like in Cambridge, Massachusetts and other high income cities where there's just not enough dense housing. So Dr. Enos is not talking about California specifically, but we wonder if you recognize uh, any of the same same, problems there. It's the same nonsense that you hear from academics in general. First of all, people don't want density. I don't know what you have, how many surveys and behavior patterns you you need to show that, that people don't want to, you know, human beings and families are not little chess pieces that can be moved around to try to prove an academic theory. So first of all, A, People don't really want density, particularly over the age of 30. Younger, yes. Hold on a second. <laughs> the, the, then what do you attribute this push in uh, cities like Los Angeles towards greater density and towards um, well, developing better, more sustainable models for building that? Um, because there is a great effort. And so far, to mitigate urban sprawl, is this yet another example in your eyes of misguided, elitist public policy? It's just... It's just not working. I mean, at very least, A, the vast majority of the housing that's being built is very expensive. I know because I ask my students, how much are you paying? And they're paying more for their rent than I'm paying for my mortgage, okay? Second of all, if it was working, why are people leaving? LA's population has declined. California's population has declined. People, where are they moving? The only place they're really moving in large numbers is Riverside County, not exactly a dense urban place. Well, let's talk about one of the big themes in your recent writing, and we assume in your forthcoming book, which is income inequality, the end of the middle class, the concentration of political and economic power you're calling uh, neo-feudalism. So first question, can you help us understand neo-feudalism? Who are the overlords? Who are the serfs? And what could be done about this policy-wise? Well, I call it neo-feudalism, not that I expect people to be out there with chain mail um, with 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 huge broadswords. I, I don't think that's going to happen. It'll happen on TV, but it won't happen in reality. What it is, is is uh, one of the great parallels with the, with the medieval era is the concentration of wealth and power that came from the collapse of an old system. That's what happened. Basically, the strongest barbarians inherited what was left of the Roman Empire. So that, you know, and just like the, in a funny way, the internet guys, there was something happening. Anybody who had a quarter of a brain knew something was happening, but they had the, you know, the moxie to go after it and they were able to raise the money. And now they have unprecedented degrees of power that we haven't seen in at least a century. What does putting it in this neo-feudal or, or this feudal framework do for us, our understanding? Well, what it does is it, it creates a, what is a very great danger, which is this notion that people cannot hope to ascend to a higher class. In other words, that the working class person, let's say, like you know, you think about the the Detroit um, auto worker who maybe maybe didn't even graduate from high school, but worked hard, joined a union, got a good job, bought a house. That path is increasingly hard to find. So, how are people responding? to this idea of a, of a neo-feudal California? I think people have gotten very, very aware of this. And, and you know, I keep trying to say, look, this is not a right or left issue. It, I, I never use the language of, you know, liberty and all that. I mean, I'm not against liberty, obviously. But, but I, you know, 
to put things in an ideological context doesn't make sense for most people, and it just sounds like rhetoric. I find people who are really concerned about, uh, you know, particularly small, small locally owned non-public businesses, and they they are really worried, and they're worried not just for them and themselves and their families, but their employees. I, I can't tell you how many times I'll hear somebody say, you know, I was expanding. I would have loved to expand it in California, but from a business point of view, I had to go to Arizona or Nevada. But I also think that there is a sense among those of us who are still in California that it can be turned around, that it has enormous potential. And um, I'm very encouraged. The other thing I'm very encouraged by um, is the tremendous presence of both uh, female and particularly Hispanic entrepreneurs. So I think California is not a lost cause like many conservatives think. Yeah, well, Joe, we'd like to play you one more clip from our Texas series. We spoke to Dr. Henry Cisneros about one-party rule in Texas, and he's talking here about young Hispanic business owners, how they really have very little choice but to become Republicans if they want to get ahead in Texas. If you were a young Hispanic in business and you wanted to progress in your community, you're going to relate to the people who are in power. And if all the appointments at the state level to serve on boards and commissions if all of the uh, invitations to you as a member of a Hispanic Chamber of Commerce are to be with like-minded business people, and they're all Republicans, then at some point you say to yourself, well, maybe that's where I should be if I want to advance. And that is an immense advantage of controlling all of the levers of power. So we wondered if kind of the mirror image of that is happening in California. Um, well, of course, Henry is you know very much right about what's going on in Texas. What Henry's uh, talking about is a Republican culture that celebrates small business and where that Hispanic young entrepreneur has 20 other Hispanic young entrepreneurs who are doing the same thing. But one other thing that's interesting about Texas is even though the state is controlled by Republicans, this, most of the cities are controlled by Democrats. Now, what I disagree with is when the Republican state says, oh, you can't have this law, that law. You know, if Austin wants to pass something stupid, let them do it, and we'll see how it works. You know, I think this idea of either the right or the left controlling everything on the local level is completely contrary to the basic principles of the the country was founded on. And that bothers me, whether it's coming from the right or the left. And doesn't it speak to the issue in California, which is it's so big and so diverse? It really depends on what city and where we're talking about, what local government we're talking about in California in terms of opportunities for uh, for people of color and Latinos. And it brings up, well, again, right. that whole issue of whether California will rupture as it occasionally pops up. People say, oh, it's, <laughs> California, it's too big, ungovernable, can't sustain it. Well, this is the sad thing. Hispanics, African-Americans do much better in the red states than the blue states. That's generally the case. I mean, what's so funny is we have people who will talk endlessly about people of color, but I think they must be thinking about people of color who, who have PhDs from Stanford because they're not certainly talking about most people. If you look at incomes and you adjust for costs, African-Americans actually do slightly better in Mississippi than they do in California, okay? That's not working. 
I mean, that's the sad thing. And actually, where are Hispanics and African-Americans moving in California? Into the interior, into the, the what's left of the red districts. I mean, that's what's so interesting is that the very places that are obsessed with racial inequality actually promote more racial inequality. What we really need, I think, is some sort of melding of some good progressive ideas with some good market-based ideas. But the problem is, how do you build a pragmatic politics that works for most people in this environment? And I think it's very difficult. Pragmatic politics, a melding of progressive and market-based ideas. We didn't see much of that in our series on pretty deep red Texas, which is so dominated by those GOP primaries for two decades now. Kotkin is so interesting how he talks about the progressive and market-based ideas. I guess I don't see them as opposed or even separate categories, Rob. But it is true that maybe California has a better shot at this. At least that's been my my feeling living and reporting here. Uh, and I think it's because California prides itself on being such a fluid place. And it is so fluid that it's forced to address new problems and to reinvent itself and and even maybe to meld the progressive and the pragmatic at times, as challenging as that seems. That would be quite an accomplishment. More to come on that subject in this California series, including with the uniquely experienced Leon Panetta, former Secretary of Defense, CIA Director, White House Chief of Staff, before all those high-level national positions, Leon Panetta was a nine-term U.S. House member from Northern California. I've seen Washington work, where Republicans and Democrats were willing to work together on major issues. And I think the same thing was true for California. Uh, but in recent years, it's become increasingly partisan, increasingly divided. Because of that division, a lot of the critical problems in California uh, really are not being addressed in a bipartisan way. I mean, there are democratic solutions, but they tend not to be built on a foundation that really includes all viewpoints. And I think we pay a price when that's the case. We hope you'll join us for these California episodes throughout the month of June. Coming up next, before our episode with Leon Panetta, we'll be talking with the LA Times columnist and podcast host, Gustavo Ariano. He'll help us understand the issues behind the California primary results with a look ahead to the November general elections. If you're getting some insight from this podcast, please share it with a like-minded friend or two and support us on Patreon or Apple subscriptions. Thanks for listening in from all of us on the team here, including resident composer Ryan Adair Rooney. The Purple Principle is a Fluent Knowledge production.